I want to read some of these first few verses of Daniel um, just to kind of give some context into our introduction to uh, the book of Daniel. Sometimes when we do these introductions and I kind of embark on these, uh, portions of these seem a little more like um, history, lecture, information um, than it does maybe preaching. Um, and there are parts that are like that, and they're meant to be that way. Um, the background's important. But there are places that hopefully you will, even in an introduction like this, you will gain some things that will be thoughtful and important to you in the context of our spiritual lives as we even go through this introduction. So uh, some places, I, I noticed we have some guests this morning. We, when we go through a book of the Bible, we always give some introduction to it and uh, sometimes maybe you're not used to that and it seems a little more like uh, a lecture or something of that nature, but uh, there, there's really things that need to be thought through as we come to study a book of the Bible of, of any one of these books. So I want to read to kind of give us some background and then we'll get started in some of this introduction. Daniel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Now this kind of gives some background to where we will see the book of Daniel. If we consider the book of Daniel and we think about it properly, we're entering a realm of history and prophecy um, as a whole. But it's the first portions of the book that really give us a context to the history of what is taking place. The life of Daniel, the work of Daniel, the understanding of who Daniel is in the purpose of where God has him in his life and time. It's also in the life and time of Israel and Judah. 
there's a sense in which we must understand that we are looking at something uh, that has been happening and leading up to this point has taken about 2,600 years. Don't take that out of context. When you're reading Daniel, you're reading something that has a setup to it from earlier portions of the Scripture. And you're looking at a setup that took about 2,600 years to get to this point. And in that 2,600 years, there's been Abraham... There's been the times of Abraham and his sons. There's been the times of Israel as a nation, the judges, the kings. There's been a whole setup of the nation. There's been a split in the nation of Israel, a time where they were friends for a little while, and then a time where the two nations just loathed each other. When you come to the time of Daniel... You're looking at a time that has ended in the region of Iraq. Now, as you begin to study the book of Daniel, the interesting thing is, is there's a lot of material out there. Um, if you were to do a search of commentaries on the book of Daniel, I, would even, I wouldn't even take a guess. Um, now, there may be lots of commentaries on the book of Daniel, but that doesn't mean they're all good. That doesn't mean they're all helpful. Um, and as a matter of fact, when you start looking through the material, um, you, you get a little piece of an understanding that after a while, Daniel has been inundated with all kinds of approaches and interpretations and all kinds of ideas thrown onto it. Even in the last 200 years, there's been multiple, multiple books written on Daniel, and it's hard to decipher at times where everyone is headed when you read these commentaries, essays, and so forth. One of my favorite early uh, Southern Baptists is a guy named B.H. Carroll. He's just a kind of an old, plain to the mind, hard nosed guy. He says, Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel in the critic's den, Daniel in the cricket's den. Now he means by that, when you read the plainness of Daniel, you see the amazing things of God's work and Daniel in the lion's den. If you begin to read a lot of 19th and 20th century material on Daniel, it's Daniel in the critic's den. There's always a critic of Daniel. And we'll get to some of that in more detail in a moment. But after a while, it becomes Daniel in the cricket's den. It's Daniel's been just totally torn down to the point that you can see nothing amazing in it at all. Because a lot of the critics bring Daniel to a place to where it's all myth. Sad to say there's been a lot of that type of thinking that has gone into writing about the book of Daniel. As I read through this material and uh, just researched multiple things as far as the critique of Daniel, um, I kind of noticed there's a, a, a large mainstream idea in the 19th and early 20th century that tries to deconstruct Daniel. 
You need to be really careful if you're going to go read material from the post-enlightenment period, 19th century, 20th century on the book of Daniel. Because if you do, there's going to be a lot of deconstruction. Now what I mean by that is um, one uh, 19th, 20th century, kind of crosses over 20th century theologian. He says, all difficulties and glaring impossibilities. Now when he's talking about difficulties and possibilities. He's talking about when you look at the book of Daniel and you see the, the idea of the visions and you see God's writing on the wall and uh, Daniel interpreting the dreams and the visions and uh, then you get into the last half of the book and the prophecies and things of that nature. He says, all difficulties and glaring impossibilities vanish when we contemplate Daniel as a lofty specimen of imaginative fiction. So that, that's how this author looks at Daniel. He just begins to tear it down to the point that it just becomes imaginative fiction. So be careful what you're going to read about Daniel. There's a lot of material out there that will stem all the way from the second century A.D. to where people use Daniel down through history as what one writer says is the use of national propaganda. Um, when you begin to read Daniel and, and material on Daniel, if you're going to study Daniel, going back all the way to the 2nd century, what you will find is a lot of writers have tried to use Daniel in the context of their own nation at their own time, and it's become used in national propaganda, whatever the nation may be. Now, that's happened a lot in la latter days as well, where a lot of Christian pastors now only interpret Daniel in light of the United States as if we're the only nation that might be written about in the scripture. And in fact, we're not. But, have to be careful and thoughtful when you're going to read some of these writers. They begin to de deconstruct Daniel in their own way and in their own, for their own purposes and their own use. You also run across the idea that people begin to wonder and guess whether Daniel actually wrote the book of Daniel. Um, even though the, the book tells us that Daniel did, and then the Lord Jesus himself tells us Daniel wrote it. We shouldn't have to guess at those things too much. But there's a lot of ink that's spilt over that. If you want to do some reading in, into the history of that, I'll be glad to give you some information, and you can, you can uh, read some good things. Uh, that argue against the idea that Daniel was written by multiple authors over a period of several hundred years B.C., uh, spanning maybe from around 500 to 165 B.C. Um, I don't think any of the material of Daniel was written in 165 B.C. The reason is is because a lot of people want to say that none of the prophecy was actually prophecy. It was another writer who came along and just was writing the material of history at the time in these certain centuries to say, well, God wasn't telling us what would happen or what will happen. God was only explaining to us what was happening at the time by another author who was not Daniel. Well, that takes away the whole idea that God not only can prophesy about future events, but God has planned and purposed future events for his glory and his kingdom. 
don't be taken away from the fact that God has a purpose in everything that he writes and he not only knows all of the future, he has planned it. There's nothing that escapes him. There's a really good conservative uh, 20th century Lutheran guy named H.C. Leupold. Um, we would disagree with him on some things, but I think he puts some of this in context when he says, we must confess to our utter inability to understand those who endeavor to discredit and honeycomb, that means punch holes in the credibility of the book of Daniel and its reliability, and then give us the bland assurance, quote, yet no words can exaggerate the value of this part of our canonical scriptures. So there's a liberal theologian that says, oh, there's nothing that can exaggerate the value of the book of Daniel in the canon. But then when they go to explain the book of Daniel, they just deconstruct it and tear it down. Leupold's saying that's ridiculous. This is a part of the canon for a reason. There's good material here, not because it's just good material. It's because it's God's word. He gave it to his people. Well, this deconstruction that goes on is one of the approaches, but there's another approach, and it's, as one writer called it, I think the prophetic, frenetic approach. It just means that people get into a frantic prophecy world and everything in Daniel is trying to explain everything in the moment. Um, a few months ago, I, uh, somebody had ordered some books and they got a free book along with the books they ordered and they gave this free book to me. And it's this whole book about how Daniel and Revelation are prophecies about uh, how the energy and oil crisis in America was already predicted in the Bible. Now, has God planned whatever crisis we're in? Yes, it's a part of his plan. But mainstream prophetic interpretation today tends to take the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation and begin to make it pointing to everything that's going on in the United States of America, specifically and broadly in the world. Now, there can be a broadness to the prophecy about the world present, but to try to pick every piece of Daniel apart and to put it into modern-day America as if every little instance in the book of Daniel and the 70 weeks and all of these things that, that are prophesied in there are about every little news detail. In my opinion, um, not only is that problematic in interpreting Daniel, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous. I'll give you just an illustration. Doing some of my research, looking through different lectures on the book of Daniel, I, I found some lectures by a man in Florida and it was obvious he came from a premillennial dispensational point of view in the book of Daniel. But as I listened to him, he kept telling the people that if you want to know more about how Daniel is ascribed to our present American problems, that he has his own news channel to do that. And you could go to this news channel and listen to him putting all of this together. 
Now, that shouldn't be a shock to some of you because this kind of thinking has been going on for a while. There's been television uh, channels that have been uh, noted to do that on great occasion. A lot of books written that way. Well, this takes the prophecy of Daniel and really, well, I'll use the words of, of Dr. Young, who's a great Old Testament scholar. He says, it takes the words of Daniel and puts them in the lunatic fringe, quote, unquote. We have to be careful. We have to be careful and thoughtful. J.C. Ryle says, On no subject have men made so many mistakes. Dogmatism, positiveness, controversial bitterness, obstinacy in maintaining untenable positions, Rash assertions and speculations have too often brought discredit on the whole subject. Now, he's speaking of of prophecy in general, but he's including the book of Daniel in that. So we have to say, with these two approaches, there are two good warnings. Number one, as one writer noted, the liberal is too nearsighted and pulls prophecy into history. That means the liberal theologian takes Daniel and only looks at that in its nearsightedness and says, what does this mean that we can get some kind of uh, modern view of moralism out of it? They take Daniel and reduce it to myth to be able to say, be encouraged by these nice little stories that God can do neat things and we need to be Steadfast like Daniel. Well, for what purpose? It's way too nearsighted. It tries to take the prophecy of Daniel and pull it into the history and take away from the whole idea that God has planned everything in all of time, space, and history, even those things which he would tell his people about what will happen in the nations. But a second warning is that the dispensationalist is too farsighted and pushes history into prophecy. You have to be careful not to get so farsighted that all you can see is the idea of some prophecy and trying to take that prophecy and bring it into your own moment and your own time. Not every prophecy works that way. And as a matter of fact, the book of Daniel, there are... Predominantly, most of its prophecy has already been fulfilled. Now, that, that's troublesome to some people, and if I said that in some churches, I'd get thrown out on my head. Thankfully, you all over 20 years have been gracious to me, and I don't think I'll be thrown out today. Um, maybe. Predominantly, most of the book of Daniel, its prophecy has already been fulfilled. Predominantly, most of all prophecy in the scripture has already been fulfilled. We are awaiting the second return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, may there be pieces of that puzzle that the scripture gives us some pieces of information here or there. Yes. Yes. And later on, when we go through the Olivet Discourse, we'll talk about some of that from the perspective of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we have to be careful not to be too far-sighted and to act as if Daniel 
predominantly is speaking to especially the American situation today. That can be pretty dangerous if you're not careful. Now, there are two other approaches I just want to give some thought to, and one of them I just want to give us some caution, and this comes, I think, from some of the liberal scholarship kind of moving into the broad evangelical church. And there's kind of this uh, dramatized devotional perspective um, to where you look at the drama of Daniel and you begin to try to build out of it, well, if I will be the next Daniel, then God will do things this way. Um, I would not suggest you try to get thrown into a lion's den. That's not the moral of Daniel. And some of you, you know, kind of snicker at that. But there is, in some thinking in Christianity, that we need to reproduce these things in a way. If we'll just trust God... Um, I'll just jump out of this plane without a parachute and I will pray like I've never prayed before all the way to the ground. Um, That's just being unwise. Okay? Now, does that mean that God doesn't do amazing things in this very day and age in, in the life of the church? No, it doesn't mean that he stopped. No, he still does those things. He doesn't do them in quite the same way, though. And I think if we're not careful with something like the book of Daniel, um, we, we tend to make it a moralistic look at the Christian life. And there are some things we can gain from the life of Daniel that are very important. His diligence, his steadfastness. And yet... That doesn't mean that just if we were to seek to strive and be diligent just like Daniel was and steadfast just like he does, that everything that happened to Daniel would somehow happen to us in a very similar way. And some of you say, well, you don't even have to point that out. But sadly today, there's a lot of teaching. And when you read material on Daniel, you find it implicitly in that material that teaches it that way. Fourthly, though, I think we need to note that there is a lot of historical narrative that is in Daniel and it's informative, and that has to be interpreted properly. I think when you look at Daniel, you'll recognize from its very first verses, the Bible is putting you into a place in time that God had orchestrated this history. We see from verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Now that phrase in and of itself opens you up to a lot of history that has taken place already. A lot of history. Not only is it giving you something specific about the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, but Jehoiakim is the king of Judah. So this comes after the split of Israel and Judah. Ten tribes in Israel or Ephraim and two tribes in Judah. This comes after that split. It also comes at a time that not only is God giving us the background of Daniel's life 
in Judah, in that nation, but he's also giving us this background in the wider world. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. These opening words give us some real sense that something serious has taken place to put Daniel where he is and where he will be. And we hope to unfold this and look at it in more specific information as we move along. The historical narrative needs to be taken very seriously, and we need to understand it to be able to interpret the book rightly. So many have tried to put the history um, to downplay it, to tear it apart. And there's really no reason to do that. Um, If you read someone like H.C. Leupold or Dr. Young, they can give you a lot of background information as to why specifically Daniel's narrative is proper in its context and all of its historical outworkings. And as we go along and we look at some of the figures like uh, Belshazzar later in chapter 5, you'll see why some of these questions are brought up, but I think they can be answered very thoughtfully and very carefully as to why the book of Daniel is properly known in history rightly and in its context purposefully. When we're thinking about the book of Daniel, we need to note that it's not just a book that is set back in time and it sits by itself. The book of Daniel is mentioned three times in uh, Ezekiel's prophecy, 1414 and 1420 and 28.3. Each of these times, there's a sense of what is taking place in the nation of Israel as to say, this is how far the nation Israel has gone. There's one thing you need to note when you're studying Daniel. The nation of Israel is down the drain. It is in a bad place and a bad way, and it has been for some time. The mentioning of Daniel in Ezekiel chapter 14 and chapter 28, but 14 especially, gives a sense of understanding that, you know what? Israel is in such bad shape that if even Daniel or Noah came to it, that Israel could not be saved by listening to Daniel or Noah, the only ones that would be saved would be Daniel and Noah themselves. This is how far gone Israel is, is that even if Daniel showed up, his righteousness could not be imputed to the nation of Israel because they have fallen so far in their idol worship All they love is their idols and themselves, and they do not love their one living God. Daniel would be saved because Daniel is shown to be steadfast in the righteousness given to him through the Messiah to come. But Daniel could do nothing for the nation Israel. That's how far gone the nation is, and that is a context of even the prayer that was read to you from chapter 9 in Daniel this morning. 
But also the book of Daniel mentions Jeremiah the prophet in Daniel chapter 9 verse 2. Both Daniel and Jeremiah were 6th century B.C. prophets. Both of them. There is a connection to not only the nation of Israel as a whole and the downgrade in the nation, but even the prophets themselves not only speaking of Daniel, but Daniel speaking of those prophets. And then we have the Lord Jesus himself attributing the very book and especially the portions of this book where we hear the words abomination of desolation from the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. The Lord Jesus attributes this book to Daniel. I don't, I enjoy reading the scholarship. Many of you know I enjoy reading the history and the background of those things. But I don't have to have all of that information uh, necessarily to believe that Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. It's pretty clear from Scripture itself, even by our Lord Jesus attributing this work to Daniel, that Daniel wrote this work, and it's meant to be used by the church. Also, the book has attribution in the New Testament, not only explicitly from the Lord Jesus, but implicitly in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. Turn with me over to Hebrews 11 just so you can get a sense of... In Hebrews chapter 11, you all know this as some of you have heard it, the hall of faith. Um, But there's the triumph of faith. The Hebrews writer is giving us this great culmination of how faith in Christ has been worked out even before Christ, excuse me, came to the earth. And this whole list of not only names, but even when you get to, uh, let's see, when you get to verse uh, 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So this is not only an attribution of faith in particular individuals, but the people of God as a whole, those who are really serious, and, and the illustration of that is, in, is by Jericho. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, and quenched the power of fire. Well, now, Daniel and his friends are not specifically mentioned by name, but they are mentioned here in the hall of faith by attribution. By the works that were done, God used them to do these things. And so here we have the New Testament giving credence to this book of Daniel and how it is to be understood uh, and used in the church. We've already discussed that the book of Daniel is mentioned in the preaching of our Lord, and we'll deal with that more in detail as we move along.
We need to note when we're studying the book of Daniel that the first six chapters of the book really are mainly history. Um, And they're written in third-person narrative. And the last chapters, 7 through 12, are in first person. Um, And in uh, that work, mainly, that is apocalyptic literature that Daniel gives us. We also have the book in its original language written in Hebrew, first section, uh, Aramaic in its middle section, and then back to Hebrew again toward the end of the book. And that's important to its dating and its understanding of what God has done uh, in the sense of Daniel and the people of Israel being enslaved in Babylon. Aramaic was the language of uh, Babylonia, and so therefore to have portions of the book written in Aramaic makes sense for its dating and its time, that it was written in that 6th century time period in the life of Daniel and that he wrote it. Well, we also have to think about Daniel the man. And when you see Daniel enter in these first few verses, it tells us that he is a young person. He's captive as a teen, and this is brought to Babylon in about 605. And he's in his 30s when the temple was raised, about 586. And by the very end... Uh, in verse 21 of chapter 1, it says, And Daniel continued, uh, continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Well, that tells us that Daniel was somewhere around 90 years of age uh, when he had completed his work and when he died. Daniel also is a man that was not left without some understanding of the truth of God's word. Now, how we're gonna, you've all read the story of, of Daniel. You've read the story of, of his three friends. You know some of these happenings of not only the lion's den, but being thrown into the furnace and the fourth man walking among them in the furnace. You know all of that. But that is not just set up by something that is completely out of a full context. Daniel's life, Daniel's writing, all of these happenings of being sent to Babylon, enslaved in Babylon, that comes on the heels of something that is great. It's Daniel, as one writer says, who was born in the shadow of Josiah's reformation. Now, Josiah was one of the kings. And Josiah was a king who followed the ways of the Lord. If you go read uh, the Kings and the Chronicles, and you see there's no king in Ephraim of the ten tribes that walks in the ways of the Lord. You just keep reading that, that line over and over. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. It just keeps happening over and over, and you just keep going, Good grief, what's the deal with these guys? When you read, though, of Judah... There's one, there's one king who brings great reformation, and his name is Josiah. And the word of the Lord is that which is brought back. The temple service is brought back correctly. All the idol worship on the high places, Josiah goes after it as well. 
But the, one of the wonderful things he does is he brings the word of God back into public reading. And the people hear the word of God read. And Daniel is born in the shadow of that reformation. And you get to that point of Kings and Chronicles and you read about Josiah, it's almost a moment of relief. I don't know if you've read that lately, but go back and read some of that. And you sit there and you just like, oh, this is so terrible. And then there's Josiah. <gasps> well, Daniel's born in that shadow. So he's not an island. We don't need to disconnect him from everything else around what is happening. God has been working in and among his people. The remnant has been there for 2,600 years. He's working day in, day out, every second. His plan unfolding. Josiah's reformation happens and then there's this downgrade again and yet it's Daniel that's born in the shadow of that reformation. And although there's but few, but few in Babylon who believe, of all those exiled, God gives us this story of the few of the remnant that they were steadfast. They believed. They followed. They walked. And they didn't just do it in moralism. They were believing men. Well, not only is he born in the shadow of Josiah's reformation, but he's brought into the shadow of Babylon. When you read of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, there's a lot of background. Babylon is a part of this great globalist agenda of the 8th, 7th, 6th, 5th centuries and so on B.C. Assyria, Egypt, Judah are all taken. This great campaign to take over the known world. And what kind of nation was it? If you read of Babylon throughout Scripture, um, there's been some other... We don't have a lot of material left from Babylon, per se, in early writings. But what, what we do have, it gives some great uh, background. Not that the Scripture needs it, but it gives some ba ba great background to that, that Babylon was an idolatrous culture and nation. Just about any and every god they could pick up, they would worship. Babylon ushers in the great kingdom uh, of, of worship in a way that child sacrifice was nothing to these nations. I just want you to think about that for a minute. Here's Daniel living in a culture that they'll worship just about any and every god They'll worship just about any and every God in any way they think they need to. 
Now, doesn't that give some context to God dealing with Nadab and Abihu in prescribed worship? Because why? God knows if we're left alone to make up our own way of worship, this is the way our hearts will go. So he disciplined Nadab and Abihu for bringing strange fire in. He killed them. Why? Because if we're left to give our own prescription to worship, to do whatever we want to do, eventually our sinful hearts will take it down a path that was never meant to go. And we can end up in a pagan way with child sacrifice. And Babylon was showing the evilness of the sinful heart Worshipping not just any and every God they could, but worshipping those gods in any and every way they could. It's one thing to have a fire and stand around the fire and sing Kumbaya. It's another thing when you start throwing children into it. I mean, wouldn't we say that? And, and this is the background of these nations that we will read of in the book of Daniel. Cyrus the Great of Persia. These nations, they were the same way. Babylon was often ruled by unstable and self-absorbed tyrant kings. These tyrant kings are threatened by men who will not pledge allegiance to them alone. And they will only pledge allegiance to God. Now that's something we could follow in to say no matter what government it is, capitalistic, democratic, republic of law, I don't care who the president is. I will not bow to that president as king. I don't care what his last name is. Will you? No. None of us who are believers should bow to any president as our king. We have one king. Jesus. That's our king. Now, can we vote in a president? Yeah. Because we're not voting in a pastor. That doesn't mean I'm going to follow him to the end of the earth. I'm going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So you, we can learn from these things in the background of this history. It's different to vote in a president. We're going to vote some pagans in and hopefully get some decent things out of them. There's not many presidents in the past of our country that were really genuine believers. There are some, probably more than we may know or less than we may know, but there are some. But any person who is drunk on power does not like allegiance to anyone else but themselves, and Babylon proves that. They were so unstable that it was a world power uh, within 70 years and then crumbled and fell. <laughs> I mean, you, think about it. Just take over everything and you just have all this power, but it's so unstable that it just... And then they're taken over. 
Daniel's living in the background and watching all of this all the way up to Cyrus the Great. He's seeing it unfold. Well, Daniel lives under Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius the Mede, and Cyrus the Great. He surveys four world empires. And he's watching the world spiral downward, as one author said. When you read Daniel, what you're seeing is, is all of the sin of Adam worked out in the nations and its downgrades spiraling downward all the while. When nations think they can run everything and do it great, when individuals think they do it better than God, when nations think they can handle all things and take over and run it better than everybody else, and they put God behind and they come to humanist mindsets, it always spirals downward. Well, it shows us that the book of Daniel has a background based in history, thousands of years of it, but it also has a basis to prove important to our present day life as believers. It may not be informative to every detail of American policy as to every single thing that goes on, but it will tell us a lot about any nation that goes away from God. And it will also tell us a lot about what it means to live in the world as professing believers. This life is not easy. As we talked about in Bible study, what you will see in Daniel and his friends is a desire to strive toward their heavenward calling. And hopefully we will be encouraged to do the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that the book of Daniel was not written in a vacuum or in a box, but it is a piece of this great puzzle giving light to the great truths of the whole of your word. Lord, we have seen small glimpses of these truths in this introduction. May there be one piece of one thing that could be taken away that your spirit would use in the life of the believer. May it cause us to long for the truths of your word. That we would not just be dabblers or we would not just be people who want to be eccentric or to know little pieces of intricacy. Lord, I pray that the book of Daniel will cause us to strive in our heavenward calling. We pray this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.